If you have any information on any of our cases, you can visit us at itsfoulplay.com. Another question that came up, and I thought that maybe we could discuss this and clear it up if it's not true or accurate. Did Jean say in The Keepers that Kathy confided in Brother Bob about the abuse? And does anyone know who Brother Bob is yet? I, you know what? I feel so stupid because I've seen it a million times and I can't remember if she actually said. I do think there was some reference to Kathy confiding in Brother Bob and Brother Bob telling Jean that she had, what do you remember? What do you people remember? <laughs> yeah, you know, you'd think that you and I would remember this part. The only reference that I remember, and it's been a while, is I remember that Brother Bob had told Jean that she was the reason that Kathy was dead. So that was the only thing that I can rem remember. Maybe we can find that out and update this if we find it to be true. And I don't remember that. I remember Brother Bob saying, I killed that nun with a, with a pipe. Do you remember that? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Maybe we need to watch so, it again. <laughs> yeah, well, we know listeners are going to, be able to find it like by the time we finish talking about it oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Us what episode and how many minutes in right the other oh boy we're now we're back to brother bob right okay folks there are like a dozen roberts bobs and bobbies in this whole story the only person who ever heard the man referred to as brother bob was Jean and Joseph Maskell talked about Brother Bob. So the only person who is ever going to be able to confirm the identity of Brother Bob is Jean. Now, Jean is a very private person. I, I think that, you know, that's for her own safety and a lot of other people. And she does not want to be pestered about this question. So it is totally up to Jean. She may have already figured out who he was, remembered who he was, and already shared it with the police. I do know that she does share any memories that she has with law enforcement. And there are certain people that she has contacted in order to do that. I have, we all have our own. Um, suppositions and and theories about who Brother Bob is, but 
nobody ever referred to him as Brother Bob except when Maskell was talking to Gene. So some of the Bobs, oh boy, Bob Lentz, he was a, a brother, a religious brother at the boys' school, Cardinal Gibbons. There was another one named Robert La uh, Lafferty, who is an abuser priest, retired, I think, from Mount St. Joe. Um, Bobby Thompson was a friend of Edgar's who lived a couple miles down from Carriage House Apartments and was, was Edgar's neighbor. There was Bobby Schmidt, who was one of the Schmidt brothers. Somebody even said, well, how, what about Kathy's brother-in-law, Bob, Marilyn's husband? I'm like, oh, please, don't even go there. That man is like a saint. He's not Brother Bob. So a lot of people have talked about Robert Hawkins. Hawkins was a priest at St. Rita's in Baltimore. I don't think he was Brother Bob. I don't think he was violent or had that kind of demeanor. Gene remembers, I think, um, you know, being probably more scared of that person than she was of Maskell. Hawkins actually, um, after the Holy Cross Cemetery dig, he took uh, Maskell into his parish and kind of let him hang out there for a while. So I don't know. Have you heard of other Bobs, Shane? I think every day on Facebook, <laughs> someone has a theory on Brother Bob. And if someone's going through old articles, it seems like there's always a question on, could Bob have been even his real name? And could this have been him? But I think the main takeaway is that these are Jean's memories. And I have full confidence in her and knowing her limit on what she shares publicly. So I think that in all circumstances, if Gene remembers who Brother Bob is or can identify him, that information is more important to go to the police than I think it would be to tell us. Right. The next question that we that we were sent was, do you think the other murders in that time frame and area are related to Sister Kathy's case? I say yes. There are six. I, I don't really have too many shades of gray on this one, do I? I pretty much, um, okay, I, I do think Kathy's was connected with Joyce. And boy, we've talked about that a lot. Joyce knew Maskell. Joyce went to St. Clement's. Joyce was not at Keogh. She was older than the Keogh students. She was 21. But from what her brothers told us, it, is possible she told Maskell to stay away from her younger sister and threatened to kill him. And I don't think he liked to hear that. So um, the other murders are in order. Grace Montagna, she was abducted. And my feeling is she was, the intention was to traffic her as a prostitute, as some of the other girls were and that she fought back, and they didn't like that. The next one was Pam Conyers. We don't know a lot about Pam. And I, I've talked to somebody in every family except for Pam's. I don't like to just make cold calls, but if somebody contacts me and said they're a relative, I, I do follow up on that. 
Pam was found strangled. Her car was left open and she was found on the median strip in Anne Arundel County um, of a highway that was under construction that, you know, regular people would not have had access to. I mean, you could get onto the highway, but um, it wouldn't be something that would be trapped, you know, traversed a lot. The other two are Heather Porter and Danny Crochetti. Heather was from Lansdowne, and I've just this week talked to one of her best friends. I've not talked to anybody in her family. Heather was, um, I hear she was a wonderful person, but she did get in trouble at school, and I don't think anything major, but she, you know, she was having issues, family issues. I think she lived with her dad. And finally, she ended up living at a place called, it was a residence for girls who were having problems. And, oh, I feel so stupid for not remembering it. I'll remember it and, and it'll come back. The House of the Good Shepherd, that's what it was. And she lived there. And it's my understanding that she ran away and was abducted. She was found... 40 minutes from there around the Baltimore Beltway in an area called Towson. And again, she's a cold case. The last one that we know about was a boy, Danny Crochetti. Danny was from Our Lady of Victory Parish, which was also one where Joseph Maskell was assigned for a while. And Danny was found near a stream behind that parish property. Um, we've heard a lot of stories about what happened to him, but talking to his relatives or one of his relatives, um, I don't believe they've ever been given an accurate account of, of what happened to him and why. So um, I, I have heard from one of the police officers that is from Baltimore County that the police also believe that it's possible there are some elements in these murders that indicate that they are connected. What do you think, Shane? I think that there was such a huge sexual and pedophile ring going on in that area of Baltimore. So, I mean, any, any young female, even a male, because we know that it wasn't just females that were being abused. Anytime one of those goes missing, I just, I just can't, bring myself to think outside the realm of how large this ring was and to the extent of their terror and what they would do. I mean, if you think about most of the survivors who we've spoken to on the podcast, when they talk about their stories, all of them had family families and stuff. And so if they were to disappear, that could cause a lot of reactions to happen. But when you have someone in these other circumstances who, you know, their cases seem to like, they, they could have been sexually motivated and then they go missing and they get murdered. It just, a lot of questions come up because it is such a huge sexual pedophile ring that's, go, that's going on. I think also once the keepers was released and these other murders were spotlighted, I think it was very difficult for all six families to be in the spotlight again after so many years, I mean, you know, 40 to 50 years, um, from the 
from the family members that have contacted me and that I've talked to. They really prefer not to be in the spotlight. So we're going to ask that, you know, the listeners, please don't bother these families because every time something's in the newspaper about, you know, the keepers, then every, they get reporters calling, they get, you know, TV stations calling, wanting a statement. They just don't want to hear anything but the truth. And that's not why, you know, reporters are calling. So I guess if you have information about any of the murders, that needs to go to the police. If you uh, private message it to Shane or I, we can tell you which jurisdiction, but you would be the one that would need to make that call. I have been able to share some information with Anne Arundel County about Pam Conyers that was given to me. And that officer, I just left it on an anonymous tip line. Uh, not anonymous, I left my name. And the officer called me back. I gave the officer the information. It was no big deal. She thanked me. But I did ask her if they if the jurisdictions talked to each other. And she said, absolutely. So she talked to Robin Teal, and they already had some of this information. But it made me feel good to know that, you know, these police officers are still doing the job of trying to figure out what happened to these young people. This episode is brought to you by Warby Parker. If you're like me and wear contacts or glasses, then you're familiar with trying on glasses at a store to pick the right pair for you. I have horrible eyesight, so picking out glasses has always been a struggle. I can't see what they look like on my face. I can't tell how wide the frames are, and I can't get the opinion of my friends. At the store, I just spend way too long trying on a lot of frames until I give up and eventually settle for an okay pair. You know I'm not alone, then for at least a year with the frames that fit decently during that 10 second try on period at the store. Warby Parker is a game changer for me and I think it will be for you too. They were founded with creating a boutique quality eyewear at a revolutionary price point. Four close friends created the company. They wanted to provide an alternative to overpriced and bland eyewear. When I decided to give them a try, I just simply went to their website and took an eight question quiz. It asked me questions like, what's the width of your face? What shapes of glasses do you like? And what color and materials do you look for in glasses? After the quiz, it displayed glasses that align with my needs and wants. And then came my favorite part. I picked five frames from their list, including two pairs of sunglasses. Then the next day I received their home try-on kit in the mail. The frames I selected came in the box, which allowed me to try them on and wear them to see how they fit doing different tasks. I'm six foot nine, so when I do the dishes, I have to look sharply down. So it's important for me that my frames fit just right so they don't fall off my face or start sliding down. I had five days to try the different pairs out. I got the opinion of a lot of friends throughout that time. Then I simply placed the frames back into the box, slapped the return shipping label they included on it, and put it in my mailbox. Glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses. Lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. The free home try-on program lets you order five pairs of glasses and try them on for free for five days with no obligation to buy. It ships free and includes a prepaid return shipping label. Head to warbyparker.com shadows. That's W-A-R-B-Y-P-A-R-K-E-R.com slash shadows to take the quiz and order your free home try-on. If you wear contacts, Warby Parker has you covered with their new brand called Scout. 
They're comfortable, breathable, and affordable daily contact lenses that are super moist, providing lasting hydration and comfort. Order a trial pair that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5. Then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more at warbyparker.com shadows. Out of the Shadows is brought to you by Best Fiends. Guys, I am passionate about crime and podcasting, but sometimes I need a break. When I feel the need to get my mind off the world, my go-to refresher is Best Fiends. Trying to solve a cold case is one huge massive puzzle, which may explain why I am obsessed with Best Fiends. The challenging puzzles makes it the perfect game to challenge friends with. One of my favorite features is that you connect your Facebook and compete with friends on progressing to further levels in the game. My favorite time to play is at night. It helps get my mind away from my busy day. I play against a few friends and right now, I think I'm in a tie for the lead at level 270. If you want to start playing, make sure you add me on Facebook so we can keep track of how far we get. And because you don't need internet to play, it's a great game for traveling. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters too. This is a five-star rated mobile puzzle game and you can download for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, best fiends. Gemma, after our, all of our episodes that we've done based on MK Ultra, what are your thoughts after looking into it? Well, I know I keep saying yes. I think that, you know, I do. I think that uh, Maskell was using the same mind control techniques that the CIA was using in the MKUltra project, number one. We know that William Urban, who was the psychiatrist on loan to the archdiocese, had access to some of the tests that Maskell was giving that he was not authorized to give. And I spoke to Dr. Urban, who strangely enough, said he was expecting my call, but that he knew nothing. And that, of course, if he knew anything, he would have to report it. Well, I didn't believe any of that. And now he's dead. Well, he didn't die because of that phone call, but he died last year. So we'll never know. Uh, we know from Lynn Shermer, who was one of our guests, that Christian Richter was an MK Ultra handler and Lynn's information was confirmed when I was able to talk to the office manager from Richter's Towson office, not the office manager, one of the former nurses. And she confirmed that he did have a black box that Lynn described perfectly that was used to measure brain waves or electrodes. Um, there's too many coincidences. I also know that one of the MK Ultra doctors at Hopkins who was involved in the program was Paul McHugh. And Paul McHugh is the guy that was creating the whole scenario around false memory syndrome. And he testified, gave a deposition during the Doe Row case that Gene and Teresa were suffering from false memory syndrome 
And as many of the listeners know, just within the last few weeks, after almost 30 years, false memory syndrome has been thrown out the window. It is something that was made up and it's not based on science. And so the memories that the survivors have had are authentic. And because of McHugh's connection with MKUltra, I even discussed with Jean, she shared with me that she thought maybe it was a conflict of interest because he was testifying against them and he was part of the MKUltra program at Hopkins. So I, I do think that there's enough evidence that at least some of these girls were used as guinea pigs. Jean believes that she was, Teresa believes that she was, and Donna believes that she was. And I find all three of them credible. What, what are your thoughts, Shane? I have no doubt that this was happening in this area of Maryland. Uh, there's enough evidence out there. So there's just a question on was Maskell linked to this? And I do believe Lynn and I believe that Richter was a handler. And when I think about the type of people that this program would look for, I could see Maskell falling into that criteria. And in my head, the only question I have is, did the CIA know about this huge pedophile ring that he had? Or did they not know and maybe later found out? I'm thinking about the abuse. We have priests being involved. We have police officers being involved. And then there's this whole thing with the MK Ultra program and the CIA. And I think at any point in time, Maskell may have considered that how perfect is it that he could have a government a government program, city city and county police officers, and the archdiocese all under his ring? Because if Maskell went down, he could have brought all of them down with him. And that's ultimately, in my mind, the perfect scenario for a pedophile predator. So I do believe that Maskell was likely involved with this program, just as I believe priests and police officers were involved in the abuse. So I think he had the perfect setup to where it protected him and ensured that he didn't go down. And ultimately, he didn't. You know, even when uh, countless people were coming towards him with accusations in the 90s. You know, he still didn't go down. He always slipped by, didn't he? You know, I think the some of the legacy of the of the MK Ultra project in terms of the CIA is that they were intentionally using young people, even very young children, as possible couriers be, between different countries to be able to carry information and then to come back and not even know that they had done it. And Lynn talked to us about that, that, you know, when she was a young child, I think she said, did she say seven or eight? That when she was taken to where there were NASA scientists and doctors and politicians, like in a medical arena, that she felt like that many of them were pedophiles and that this was a perfect cover for them. The expert in, CI, in the MKUltra project talked about 
some files that had to do with the finances were salvaged. And so that's how they're finding out about some of this. But it was a, it is a black mark in our government's history that children were being used as sex slaves to um, courier information, to prepare them to courier information between different countries. The MK Ultra specialist you were referring to as Dr. Ross. The next piece that I'd like, like us to talk about is, can you tell us, Gemma, what your recent communication was with the Archdiocese and the email exchange? Okay. Well, there have been people who have sent me information who used to work for the Archdiocese who told me that when they were working there, they were aware that when Joseph Maskell was assigned there between 1975 and 1980, which was right after he left Keogh, that he was assigned to the Division of Schools at the Catholic Center downtown in the Archdiocesan Building in Baltimore, and that one of his responsibilities was to evaluate foster children for placement. What a vulnerable population to put with that man. Now, I first was told it was part of Catholic Charities, and then I was told it was part of the St. Vincent de Paul Orphanage. I also was told that there were some high school students from either Towson Catholic High School or a high school called the Catholic High School, both in Baltimore, and that these high school students were assigned to him um, as like a work-study program to do filing and clerical work for him, and that because he was so creepy, they left. Now, I have not been able to find evidence of any of that. So, of course, in my naive head, I wrote to the archdiocese and asked if they had any information. I wrote to Sean Kane, who is the director of communications, and I wrote to David Kinkoff, who's one of the archdiocesan attorneys. And instead of responding to me, they turned my email over to a woman named Jerry Burkhart, who is the representative for child protective services in the archdiocese. Now, I've met her, very nice lady, but I met her at the mediation table for one of the Keogh survivors who had no one to go with her. So, of course, it raised a big ruckus when I arrived because they didn't want me in there with her, but she said, Gemma's my person today. And I thought it's notable that the table where this mediation happens is a large rectangular conference table, and the survivor and their person sit on one side of the table with their attorney. And on the other side, Jerry Burkhart sat between the archdiocesan attorneys. Now, I don't know about you, but I was intimidated. She's supposed to be the advocate for this survivor. And it was not at all evident that she was anybody's advocate. So she wrote back to me, and all of this has been on the Out of the Shadows page and the Keepers page and also the page called um, Who Killed Sister Kathy? And her response was, we have no evidence of any um, student interns 
and we have no records that any children were um, evaluated by Joseph Maskell. Well, of course they don't, because it's probably all gone. So I didn't stop there. Her next paragraph was part of a form letter that gave me instructions about how to um, report sexual abuse to the archdiocese. Okay, I can feel my blood pressure going up right now because you know what? That's the last thing in the world I would do. I would call 911 if my child or somebody in my family was abused by a priest and let law enforcement handle it. So most of the letter was form letter and then thank you very much, blah, blah, blah. Well, I didn't like that. So I wrote back and I included the gentleman again and I said, turned my letter over to Jerry. So I'm including you in this. Um, and I gave them more information about how I felt and how we all feel and that 150,000 people worldwide are waiting for some answers. The pages that we're on, Shane, were very supportive of me, but I have yet to get a response. 